I think you guys liked that last one, didn't you? Yeah. You liked all of them. Those hymns are a little high, so you have to be careful to be careful on those hymns. I want to start this morning with a line from a song performed by Casting Crowns. I think I've shared it with you before, but it, it says so much. The line is written to Jesus, and it captures the essence of true conversion. The line is this, to know you, to know Jesus Christ, is to ache for more than the ordinary. To know you, to know Jesus Christ, is to look beyond the temporary. I love that line. I used it in one of my books. I think it captures the essence of true conversion. One more time. To know Jesus Christ is to ache for more than the ordinary. To know Jesus Christ is to look beyond the temporary. So I'm going to ask you, each one of you sitting here this morning, do you get that? Do you understand that? Do you feel that? Do you love it? It reminds me of one of the one of my favorite scenes in Franco Zeffirelli's movie entitled Jesus of Nazareth. Now, I've confessed to you, I don't generally like Jesus movies. They almost always get it wrong. And I mean, how can you portray accurately God incarnate? So I have a huge problem with Jesus movies as a general rule. But I really loved this one scene in Zeffirelli's movie Jesus of Nazareth. The scene is built around Peter and Matthew. It's their first night as disciples. They just left everything. They're getting ready to bed down under the stars. Peter says, I told my wife I won't be away very long. And in any case, the fishing is hopeless. Why not go away? I told her I'll come back in the spring. Matthew says, don't lie to her. And don't lie to yourself. Peter says, lie. Matthew says, yes, you know very well you'll never go back. It'll never be the same for you. Peter says, I will. I will go back. Matthew says, no, you won't. You will never go back. You'll never fish again. You'll never get drunk again. You'll never live in Capernaum again. None of us will. We'll never be the same, and neither will the lives of everyone in the whole world. Amen? The Son of God is here. Everything has changed Matthew is right. Randy Alcorn is a famous, well-known well Christian author and preacher. He wrote a line, and I've shared it with you before, but I love it. He says, if we listen to Jesus, we will never be the same. And then he says this beautiful thing, nor will we ever want to be, right? We'll never be the same, nor will we ever want to be the same. We can't go back to the way it was before I knew him. I can't go back. I can't live that small anymore. You know, I can't just live for this orbit around, this, this three-foot orbit around Jim. I can't live for that. It's not big enough. It doesn't fill my soul. It doesn't make my heart beat fast. 
To know Jesus is to ache for more than the ordinary. To know Jesus is to look beyond the temporary. That famous English preacher Charles Spurgeon, he said it so well. Real Christians are spoiled for this world. It just holds little to no allure any longer. We have met our God. We have met our Redeemer. <laughs> and we've got that ache. We have got that ache that Casting Crowns talks about. The world simply does not hold our full attention any longer. We are hopelessly in love with Jesus. We are keenly aware that we are not here to stay. We are here to go. We are aliens. We are exiles. We are pilgrims. We are passing through. It's what never stops bubbling up in the from the deep within our regenerate souls. Hopelessly in love with Christ. Hopelessly in love with Christ. And that irrepressible anticipation of what's waiting for us beyond this life. It's been engrafted and encoded into our regenerate DNA. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. We are now seeking the things above. We are now setting our minds on the things above. It's who we are. This is why the world gets a little tense around us. You know, we're not looking at their agenda. We're looking at God's agenda. And it's utterly different than that of the world. Some of you might be saying, Jim, that's great, man. That's really good. But what has it got to do with Jude? My answer to you is it has everything to do with Jude. Not only do we understand from the text that Joe read that Jesus has come, he's coming back. He's come and he's coming back. When he came, he changed everything. And when he comes back, he will change everything yet again. And this time... Forever. This cosmos, this earth, this life is not a steady state proposition. Some of you are living as if it's a steady, uh, a steady state proposition. Let me get it right. A steady state proposition. Some of you are living like you're just going to be here. No, you're out of here. You're out of here. Real soon you're out of here. How does the Bible talk about it? Life is what? You know what the Bible says. A vapor, a breath, a shadow. As compared to eternity. You can turn with me if you like. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to start over in 2 Peter 3. You can turn with me if you like. You don't have to. 2 Peter 3. We'll be back in Jude in just a moment. 2 Peter 3.10. Jesus is coming back. He's going to bring in the new heaven and new earth. 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Yes, everything is going to change. Continuing on here in 2 Peter 3.11 the Holy, Holy Spirit asks a pretty important question. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, 
What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements uh, will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, and here we go, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Jesus came the first time, and Matthew is right. Everything changed for everybody. Jesus is coming back a second time, and everything will change again, and this time forever. So God asks you and me, in light of Christ's second coming, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? And you heard God's command, 2 Peter 3.14. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. You know, you run into so many professed Christians, and it's just a peripheral issue. It's always peripheral. Even if I, just, you know, even if I attend church on Sunday, it's kind of peripheral. You know, all the way through Jude... I guess the, the most important verse has been contend earnestly. And the question is, are you? Are you a true Christian in the world? Are you contending earnestly for the faith? If it's peripheral, it is not real. If it's peripheral, it is not saving. It cannot be peripheral. God continues with his exhortation there in 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, <laughs> we've got the full story. Be on your guard. Are you on your guard? So that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. This brings us back around to what we've been talking about in the book of Jude. And, and, and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And this brings us back, this brings us back to Jude. So I hope you have your Bible open to the book of Jude. Be on your guard against false teachers. That's what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Be diligent in your holy conduct. Diligent. That's not passive. That's not peripheral. Diligent. That's what God's calling us to. Diligence. In our Christian faith and our Christian walk. He says, guard your steadfastness. I look up this word, steadfastness. It means your commitment, your persistence, your devotion. Now, if I'm a third party observer, is that how I would describe your Christianity? Steadfast. Right? Steadfast. Full of commitment and persistence and devotion. To the God who made me and the God who redeemed me. And we're called to be a student of the word. Again, contending earnestly for the faith to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pick up here Jude 14. Jude 14. You heard the text read. Let me read back through the first three verses there. Jude 14. And about these, these are the false teachers we've been talking about for three or four weeks. And about these false teachers, also Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came 
with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That being Christ, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. So, some of you, if you know your Bibles, you remember Enoch over in Genesis 5. He walked with God and then he was not, for God took him. So, he and Elijah were taken up into heaven alive. These two guys were what is known as translated. They, they were translated. And we have this prophecy of Enoch here in the text. This is not recorded in the Old Testament, but it's handed down through the oral and written tradition of the nation of Israel. And it's interesting, isn't it? Only seven generations from Adam, God is giving a prophecy about the second coming. Not the first, but the second. The second coming. A judgment so unavoidable, it's spoken of in the past tense. It will happen. You will see it. We will all see it. The second coming of Christ. And the judgment that will follow for those who are not his. This is how the Holy Spirit says it through Paul in, second, in his second letter to the Thessalonians. And the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 and 9. And in verse 15, did you notice... Yes, it's hard to miss. Jesus is going to judge the ungodly. So, you, so there's no confusion here, and we can't miss this four times. I don't know what the Greek word is. I didn't look it up. But the English here translated in the NAS, ungodly, 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 ungodly. Knowing that God is pristinely holy and infinitely holy, how does he view your life? Is it godly or ungodly? I mean, this is something for us to ask ourselves. God is making the point with an exclamation point here. The ungodly will be judged. This word, I, I did do a little bit of a word study. This word means, and I love this, this is so perfect. This word means to be destitute of reverential awe toward God. Destitute of reverential awe toward God. Now, obviously, this is the whole world. Sadly, this is a large segment of the professing church. There's no real reverential awe before God. Not really. I go to church, it's a habit. You know, but do I spend time alone with him, worshiping him and prostrating myself? You know, maybe not physically, but there's nothing wrong with the physical act. But for sure, spiritually, I'm prostrated before this great God. Right. 
To be destitute of reverential awe toward God. It's what the Holy Spirit's talking about in Romans 1.21. They do not honor me, God says. They do not honor me as God and they do not give thanks to me. They do not genuinely thank me. You know, we were with someone just in the last few days, you know, and you realize everything is a gift. Everything's a gift. That next brainwave is a gift and also a stewardship, right? It's a gift and a stewardship that we have before God. They do not honor me as God, he says. You know, where you got so many folks, even people who profess to be Christians, and they're, own, they're, they're their own little God. You know, their, their little life is, and he's a little sovereign. She's a little sovereign over their little life. God's never brought into the equation, not really. Maybe a hat tip on Sunday. But God's not really in any meaningful way brought in to the life. Romans 3.18, the Holy Spirit tells us that rebellious mankind has no fear of God. Don't you see it every day? Don't you hear it every day? His name is a slang. His name is slang. It's, you know, it's a throwaway word at the end of a sentence. Man, this is not good. If you're in that lazy, I'm going to say it, stupid habit, get out. Get out of that habit of ever using God's name out of context. Get out of that habit. Get out of that habit. He doesn't take it kindly. Devoid of reverential awe. How is it possible as a creature to be devoid of reverential awe of the one who molded you out of dust? How is it possible? It just shows you the insanity of mankind. How is it possible? If you're just a thinking person, you can connect the dots. My creator is there. How should I live today? I mean, that's the question before, again, any thoughtful person. I love, I love how God says it through Jeremiah 5, 22. He says, do you not fear me? Do you not tremble before me? That was the, 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 the text that we put on our, on our banner over at the G3 conference. Do you not fear me? Do you not fear me? No, they didn't fear God. The Old Testament Jews, many of them, if not most of them. Same thing is true in the modern church. No real fear. No real reverential awe. No, not really. And of course, backhandedly, I'm exhorting you to go there in your own soul. I'm exhorting you in your your heart, your soul, and your mind to get to that place where you are practicing reverential awe. And if you're not practicing and you don't know how to practice it, then you need to cry out to your creator. You need to learn how to practice reverential awe. You must learn. It's what it means to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 16, did you notice... These guys are grumblers and, and, and fault finders. And, and the connotation here is, is not just general grumbling, but they're grumbling against God and they're finding fault uh, with God. They don't fear him. They're too busy critiquing him. 
Why is this in my life? Why did this happen? Why did you let that happen? Let's critique God. The favorite pastime of unregenerate man and sadly many who profess to be Christians, critiquing God. This is a, this is a great insult, beloved. When does the clay ever speak to the potter? When does the clay ever speak back to the potter? I mean, this is a biblical illustration, is it not? Ungodly people, they have no reverential awe toward God. Have you ever seen an angry lamb? Ever been around sheep? I've never seen one. There's one in Revelation 6. And let's just read that excerpt. You don't need to turn with me. Revelation 6, 14 through 17. The sky was split apart like a scroll, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free men hid themselves in the caves and, and, and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. He's coming. He came that first time in a manger and everything has changed. He's coming again on the stallion and everything will change again. And this time forever. You guys know Revelation 19, 11 through 16. John writes, and I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations and tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus is coming back. You'll see it. Every eye will see it. I love how, I love how the Lord says it in Jeremiah 25, 31. The Lord has a controversy with the nations. Amen. Can you imagine being in controversy with God? Well, if you're outside of Christ, that's exactly where you are. You have a controversy. God has a controversy with you. And that text ends. And he will enter into judgment with all flesh. You know, you go to your average church, you're not going to hear about this controversy. <laughs> we got we to gotta perpetuate the church. That's the most important thing. We got to get people in the seats. And we got to get some offerings. So be judicious in whatever you might say in the pulpit, right? The Lord has a controversy with the lost man or woman. And the Lord knows how to finish a controversy. He knows how to finish one. And he has told us over and over and over again that he will, in fact, 
finish it. Verses 17 and 19 through 19. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the, the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of spirit. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit calls us to remember the words of the apostles. The apostles all warned us about false teachers. This came really quick. We've talked about this. The apostasy came quick. Satan is no sluggard. He was quick to counterfeit the New Testament gospel. The Holy Spirit gave John the revelation some 25 years after the book of Jude was written. And you may remember that John wrote to seven churches, five of which had already begun to apostatize. It happened quick. Just as the word told us it would. And of course, underscored by the Laodicean church that was, remember the word that God used, lukewarm? I hate lukewarm. In effect, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. I hate lukewarm. You know, God doesn't do anything lukewarm. And don't dare profess to be a Christian if you are. He says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The point here is that the apostasy the apostles warned about came quick. And we know, don't we, sadly, in our day, it's an epidemic. I'll repeat what I've said either last week or the week before. If you take Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox, and the various strands of apostate Protestantism, most of what the world calls Christianity, it is biblically unrecognizable in most places. It is biblically unrecognizable in most places. Only if they are opening this and preaching out of this. There's no value. There's no value in what is called the Christian church apart from the word of God. And it's the 66 books. There's no value. It's, uh, as Charles Spurgeon said, it's flesh on parade. These, these, these pseudo-denominations, it's flesh on parade. All of these false clergy. They've all added to or taken away from the Bible. They, don't, they no longer hold to the Bible as their final authority. Just read what they say. Just read what they say. You say, Jim, that can't be true. Go read what they say. They've jettisoned the Bible as their final authority. They use it when it works for them, when it's convenient, when it serves their purposes, they'll use it. They'll throw out a verse here, a verse there. They add to and they take away from. It's what the false church does. So Jude is saying, this is no surprise. God told us through his apostles this kind of heresy was coming. Paul said it in 1 Timothy 4. Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, and hypocritical liars. 
Peter said it in 2 Peter 2.1. These folks will introduce destructive heresies and the truth will be maligned and they will exploit with false words. John said it in 1 John 4.1. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. It's an epidemic. You know, I'm always amazed. I don't know how you think about it, but I'm always amazed that God has not judged the world yet. I mean, I'm just astonished. How, you talk about long-suffering. You know, but there's that verse, what it, was it, Romans 2 maybe, about storing up wrath, right? And men are just storing up wrath. And God's long-suffering. I, I, I just, you know, ever since I got first converted <laughs> back in the early 80s, it's like I, I just keep waiting. I keep waiting for him to drop the hammer, you know? There's no reverential awe of God. He's so long suffering, verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So how does the, the true believer navigate? And that's the title of the sermon, Navigating Apostasy. How do, we, how do we navigate this avalanche that we find ourselves in? It's really quite simple. We saw it in verse 17, right? We, we, we're, we remember the words given to us by the apostles. We remember these words. We love these words. We study these words. We memorize these words. We are students of the Bible. So yeah, first... First, we are not supposed to be naive about the visible church. Most of it is apostate. Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox, and very much, if not most, of Protestantism. It is apostate. We're not supposed to be naive about this. God says it will happen. It has happened. And it continues to happen. God's word has more or less been put on the shelf in many, many, many places. And to abandon the 66 books of the Bible and to insert your tradition in its place is to abandon God. And God understands what that means. He understands that you have abandoned him. He knows what that means. And he has a controversy with you. And simply looking at, uh, I already said it, I won't say it again. Sadly, we are in a full-blown plague of false teaching and false, false churches, false denominations. We're not surprised. God has warned us. We know our Bibles. We're not shocked when they teach heresy. We're not shocked. It's a false church. It's a false teacher. We're not shocked when they turn Jesus into some user-friendly, effeminate, lucky charm cartoon. We're not shocked. When you can pray to Mary and she'll handle it for you. Show me the text. Show me the text. 
This is blasphemy. Verse 20, secondly, to navigate this sea of counterfeit Christianity, we are to what? What does verse 20 tell us? Build ourselves upon this, our, uh, uh, on our most holy faith. Again, we're talking about the same thing. Knowing our Bibles, believing our Bibles, being strong in biblical truth, contending for the faith. Back to Jude 3. And yes, of course, that implies that we're serious students. We, we're involved in personal Bible study, group Bible study, and we, we sit under the preached word. God has called us to be witnesses. You know what our job is, to be witnesses in the world, the Great Commission. We are told to wield. You know the word? We are told to wield the word. Wield. I looked it up. I want to share it with you. What does it mean to wield the scriptures? To handle or use effectively with sustained effort for lasting effect. I love that. Okay, I don't want you to forget this. Your job is to wield the word. Okay? This is what real Christians do. They wield the word. I'm going to read the definition again. To handle or to use effectively with sustained effort for lasting effect. Wield it. The only way you can do that is to be a student of it. Verse 20, thirdly, uh, we're to pray in the Holy Spirit. Well, I, I spoke in tongues. That takes care of it. No, this is not about tongues. It's not about visions and it's not about trances. It's, it's about finding God's will in prayer. That's what this is about. It's not about anything superficial. This is about communing with God. This is about communing with God. That's what prayer is. And yes, we bring our petitions to Him, but we submit them to Him, right? It's how Jesus prayed. Lord, take this cup, but hey, I'll do Your will. It's how Paul prayed. Take this thorn, but you know what? Okay, he said no. Therefore, I'm well contented, Paul said. It's how... We're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not Jim's will, your will. And I know if I, if I commune with him in prayer, he'll take my prayer requests that need to be altered and he will teach me about that. And the no is as good as the yes because it's God's will for, your, for his children. The no is as good as the yes. Because he knows better than I do. Now, some of you may not be convinced that he knows better than you. But when you take my word for it, I'm an old man. He knows better than you. He knows better. And you know this thing folks do, praying in Jesus' name. We all do it. It's a great thing. What does it mean? That I'm, I'm, I'm obligating God to answer my prayer exactly the way I expressed it? No. What does it mean? I submit. I submit to the Lordship of Christ. I submit every petition to the Lordship of Christ. And I want the no. If I need the no, give it to me. Give it to me. Because He knows best. You know, if, you, if you're not to that place where you actually trust God, you've got a long way to go. This is how the mature believer prays, I trust God. In the yes or the no, 
it's all good with me because of the Romans 8 something, eight, as it, I think it's 8.30. He's bringing me what? What's the highest? What's the hall? What, what is, where's, what's God's goal in the trial in your life? What's God's goal? That it'll be easy for you tomorrow? What's his goal? To bring you into conformity with his son? Amen? To bring you into conformity with his son? You don't want that? Yeah, you want that. We all want that. We want to learn to be like Jesus. Fourthly, verse 21, we're keeping uh, ourselves in the love of God. This is really the inevitable result of being a student of the word and praying in the Holy Spirit. We stay close to God and his will for us. And what is God's will for us? Abide in my love, he says in, in John 15. If you keep my commandments, you, you're doing it. You're abiding in my love. Does that mean we're perfect? No. But does, that, does that mean we hate our sin? Yes. Does that mean we're confessing our sin? Yes. Does that mean we're repenting of our sin? Yes. Are you sinless? No. But if you abide in my love, you'll keep my commandments. If you really love me. You know, you know how he says it over in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know, when I counsel anybody about any kind of problem, there are two questions. Only two questions, really, that, that I think kind of brings it all to a point. Are you delighting yourself in the Lord? Psalm 37, 4. Most people will honestly confess, no. I'm so focused on the three things that are wrong in my life that I cannot praise God for everything else. You know, this is just my experience as a pastor. No, I'm not delighting in God. I'm not. So there's the first rebuke, right? Lovingly. And then the second question is, are you obeying the Lord in this, in this situation? Are you obeying God? If you love him, and that's the test. It's not I believe some facts about him. I actually love him. I'm in a relationship. <laughs> that's the test. If you love him, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is a big deal with God, not because he's a dictatorial tyrant. It's because he inhabits obedience. He inhabits the obedience of his people. You know, it's a John 14, 21 thing. Um, if, if, if you keep my commandments, I will what, Brad? I will disclose myself to you, right? I disclose myself to my obedient people. I'm giving myself to them in a brand new way that they've never experienced. This is why God is always taking you to the new place in obedience, right? Because you're getting more of God. <laughs> if you'll delight in him and obey him, you get more of God. You know, there's certain things. I got fired one time, not because I was a good Christian, but because I wanted more of God. I'm sitting in, in my car at lunch, and I, the, my boss had asked me to do something illegal. And uh, I didn't immediately say no because I'm such a weenie. But I went, I went and did my Bible study, and I was crying out to God, and God took me to John 14, 21, and I never looked back. I told my boss, no, not because I'm a good man, because I want disclosure. I want God's disclosure. Obedience is a blast. 
most of you know what I'm talking about. Fifthly, verse 21, we wait anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. It simply means that we live in the light of the certainty of his return and that we will be with him forever. We're pointing at the Bema seat, right? We're pointing at that well done thing in Matthew 25, 23. Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Right, Karen? I've been talking about something, right? And I would kind of really not want to do it. It's going to be hard, but it's like, you know, I'm a steward. I got to do it. I got to do it. I'm going to give an account soon. i got to do it. In my flesh, I don't want to because I'm a sluggard. But in my spirit, it is a no-brainer. Disclosure will happen. (laughs) Disclosure will happen. As we obey the Lord. You know, John calls this this looking forward to the, his return and our eternity with him. He calls it a purifying hope, 1 John 3, 3. Peter calls it a living hope, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Verses 22 and 23. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Lastly, in the face of this avalanche of false teaching and pseudo-Christianity, Jesus says, do your job. What's your job? What's the Great Commission? That you'll go and tell. You say, Jim, I'm not a missionary. You don't have to be a missionary. Not in a, not in a crossing cultural border kind of thing. But you are a missionary in the sense that this is not your home. You now belong there, and you have things you need to do here. You need to sow the seed. It's your job. That's your job. It's not to show up, show up for church when it's convenient. Your job is to sow the good seed. It's what we do. Jesus says in 28, Teaching them to observe all I have commanded. So how can you instruct someone, counsel someone about obeying all that Jesus has commanded if you don't know what Jesus has commanded? Obviously, we must be students of the word. And we are equal opportunity evangelists. We share the truth with everyone, with the immature believer struggling with doubts, verse 22, with unbelievers clearly on their way to hell, snatching out of the fire, verse 23, with apostates who have grossly polluted their professions of faith, verse 23. So we're just sowing that seed. But we don't know what God's going to do with it. We don't ever give up on anybody, right? If they're willing to hear, we sow the seed. We sow the seed. So in summary, how do we navigate... The apostasy we find ourselves in, in this culture. First, we're not surprised or naive about it. Just because somebody says they're a priest or a pastor, well, you're going to have to show me. I'm going to have to hear you teach the Word of God. And just because you say something and you wear a collar, I'm not buying it. Right? Just because you're the most famous preacher in Houston and in America... 
and you have a TV show, I ain't buying it. Unless it's in the Word. Beloved, God told us this would happen, and it has happened. Secondly, we always, we're always building up our faith by being in the Word of God. I won't belabor it. We've talked about it. Verse 20. Uh, thirdly, uh, we're yielded to the will of God in our prayers. We're just trying to find the will of God in our prayers. Really, I have, this, I have this, this petition, Lord, and I'm crying out to you. But really, ultimately, it's all about your sovereign will. And I want that. I want that. Fourthly, we are the doulos guys. We are the slaves. We love Christ and we are expending energy to obeying, verse 21. Fifthly, we genuinely and anxiously are looking for His coming, verse 21. Lastly, we're doing what our Creator, Redeemer, God told us to do. We are telling. We are disciples. And we are telling. We will share the truth with anyone who will give us a hearing. We are doing Jude 3. And here's the deal. And if you're born again, you understand what I'm saying. We, we can't help it. <laughs> we have to talk about him. We have to. Because we, again, I've said it a couple times already, but we are so hopelessly in love with this God. Who has loved us in the most remarkable way. No one's ever loved you like Jesus Christ. No one. No one ever has, no one ever will. He is the most wonderful and beautiful and loving and delightful and engaging and alluring and fascinating and interesting and intelligent and trustworthy and capable and competent and compelling, compelling person you have ever met. And everything has changed since you have met him. Matthew was right, wasn't he? <laughs> what he told Peter in that movie, it's obviously not, it's not a biblical line. It's just a line in a movie. Everything has changed, and if we listen to Jesus, we will never be the same, nor will we ever want to be the same. Casting crowns got it just about right. To know Jesus Christ is to ache for more than the ordinary. To know Jesus Christ is to look beyond the temporary. We can't live small anymore. I can't just do life anymore. I want to walk with God. It's what real Christianity is. Jesus came. He was in a manger. Everything changed. Jesus is coming. He'll be on his stallion and everything will change again this time forever. If we really believe these things... How can we live for the ordinary? If we really believe these things, how can we give ourselves to the temporary? I simply say that we cannot. We cannot. Let's pray.